This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. You're listening to MPB Season Pass on Think Radio with producer Liz Gill. I'm Jay White. Good Thursday morning to you. On today's show, we'll speak with retiring Alcorn State tennis coach Anthony Dodgen. He's coached Alcorn to 12 SWAC championships in men's and women's tennis and has a championship pedigree at St. Aloysius and uh, Vicksburg before that. He's retiring. We'll reminisce about his career. The Kentucky Derby is this weekend. We'll get you up to speed so you can watch the race with knowledge. Uh, that is, if you don't want to tune into the 17-hour pre-match or pre-race, whatever you want to call it, uh, they'll have plenty of that for you. But first, we've invited onto the show Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame member Con Maloney, Jackson businessman and former owner of the Jackson Mets and the Jackson Generals, and a huge advocate of professional baseball here in the state of Mississippi, uh, and also instrumental in the creation of the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame and Museum. Mr. Maloney, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Thank you. It, it's great to have you on the program. There's tons and tons and tons of things. Uh, we could take up the whole hour with the questions that I have for you. But um, let me ask you, before you got into the uh, the, the, the front office aspect of, of owning a professional uh, baseball team and, and getting Jackson, Mississippi, and the state of Mississippi, for that matter, back on the professional baseball uh, map, I see where you played, uh, you played some college ball in Wyoming, University of Wyoming. Tell me about that story. How'd you wind up out there? <laughs> well, it was a long way from home, <laughs> right? <laughs> but the bottom line, they offered me a scholarship to play football out there, and I took them up on it, and it was a wonderful experience. So, we're—I know you're from—you were born in Washington D.C. Your hometown is Jackson. Where, where were you at in high school? How, how did Wyoming find out about you? Well, I, I don't really know how they found out about me. I guess they were <laughs> wiping the bottom of the barrel looking for players, no. and uh, and I was found down there, but. Uh, they uh, they offered me a scholarship and I went out there and played and it was a very enjoyable experience. Well, very very interesting. How about that? All right. So, um, how did you come into um, the the potential of of buying a minor league baseball team in in the night the early nineteen uh, seventies and the potential of moving that team to Jackson, Mississippi? How'd that come about? Well. My dad was a was a, a big big baseball fan, and we used to go to ball games all the time. and And uh, the opportunity to uh, purchase a, a ball club became available, and I tried to get some people to take it up take up on it, and and they didn't. And I finally decided, well, hey, somebody has to, so it <laughs> ought to be me. So that's how I basically got involved, and I've never regretted it. So it, you had to have a place to play, and just looking. Looking at newspaper archives from the past, it, it seems like, like with a lot of things with the capital city, there, there was uh, much gnashing of teeth and consternation about getting a stadium built. How, what was the process of getting Smith Wills Stadium uh, uh, erected? Well, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Smith Wills was, was built on a garbage dump. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was interesting because in early years when the sun got hot, sometimes you'd see uh, paper come up through the, through the ground uh, uh, out of that garbage dump. But it, uh, it worked out that it was a well-located facility and uh, worked out very nicely. And, and bottom line, uh, I think it has served the city well. How do you, so you were affiliated with uh, the New York Mets uh, for the longest time, up until 1990. How would you come about um, entertaining the Mets for their double-A franchise? Well, they, uh, the Mets were good friends of mine, and I had known them all for many years, and they were looking for someone to take the franchise, and I tried to help them find someone. And finally, one day they said, Con, you know, we're not looking to talk to anybody else. We want you to take it. <laughs> so uh, they said, make us an offer we can can't refuse. I made them an offer, and they didn't refuse. And uh, as a result, I came into a uh, into a program that I I frankly didn't know a heck of a lot about. But uh, it was one of the
of the more enjoyable experiences I ever had. Now, uh, you mentioned your father earlier. Uh, your father started um, a, well, I don't know exactly what you call it. It's more electronics now, but it was a, a furniture electronics appliance business a long time ago, and you and your, your brothers inherited it. It's been very successful for a long, long time. Well, how, it actually how, started as a lumberyard. A lumberyard, okay. And Dad was building houses, and he opened a lumberyard. Well, what he found out was is none of his competitors who he, he was building houses against wanted to do business with him because he was a competitor. So he got out of the building business, went strictly into the lumberyard, and then from the lumberyard there came a situation where people were needing dishwashers. So that's basically how he moved into the appliance business. Wow, how about that? So it, it, how different uh, owning a retail business that, that had been successful, has been successful for a long, long time, how different is owning uh, a business like this, a, a professional sports franchise? Well, it's very, very interesting because uh, several of the people who work with me when I got involved in this said, hey, we don't want any part of, of being in a, in a baseball <laughs> program. I mean, that's not what we're in business for. And, and so I separated the, uh, the baseball part of it out and uh, left them with the, uh, uh, with the appliance business and so forth. And, and, uh, and since then, it has uh, just moved along, took a, uh, took a good course, and like I said, it's been very, very enjoyable for me. Con Maloney is our guest, uh, Mississippi Sports Hall of Famer, longtime professional baseball uh, advocate in, uh, here in the state of Mississippi. So the Mets were in the Texas League and uh, the, the Far East franchise in the Texas League. Um, some of the places they would go to, Amarillo, Midland, El Paso, Lord have mercy. These are a lot of long, long trips. Uh, how, how did you, how did you uh, transport the players around? And did you, did you look for any ways to maybe keep the guys fresh, especially since being on the far east side, way east side of the league, those are a lot of long, long trips. Well, you right on right on line with that, and there wasn't much of a way. You know, it was not a financially uh, uh, beneficial program, so we took a lot of bus rides. And <laughs> what I what I realized was the only way I could keep the moaning and groaning down to a great extent was to take those bus rides with them. How about and, that? And uh, so I uh, I made many of those long long trips uh, here, there, and yon. And uh, and back then we didn't even have restrooms in the bus, so it. Uh, <laughs> they were rather difficult, but people don't, don't moan quite as much when the owner is there with them. So uh, that's true. I, I decided that was the best way to do it, and it worked out very nicely. Right. But I had a great relationship with the players, and and was young enough to be able to enjoy being around them. In fact, afternoons when nobody was around, I'd uh, I'd grab a catcher's mitt and go out and play first base. So, <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, I was I was deeply involved and and like I said I uh, I couldn't have enjoyed anything anymore. The 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 business or, or the partnership I should say with the Mets uh, it could not have come at a better time. The Mets were were coming of age, kind of a renaissance for that franchise in the 1980s. I think the Jackson Mets missed the Texas League playoffs once, maybe twice in the decade of the 1980s, and and the team that won the world championship in 1986 was built at probably two-thirds or more of that roster had come through Jackson in the, in the previous four or five seasons, including the manager, Davey Johnson. What was it like to see all of those guys come through and, and to know that you know the Mets obviously had you know a great scouting, great talent um, identification at the time, and that you were getting some of the very best players the game had to offer, you know, coming through those grounds of Smithville Stadium every year. Well, you're exactly right. I had, there were 14 players that had come through Jackson that were on that 86 team. And as a result, I had a very good relationship, obviously, with them and very honestly was able to travel with them during the playoffs uh, to a great extent. So that was a very special time for me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation. If you're not directly involved, you don't realize how, how interesting it can be. But the relationships that I built <clears throat> way back then are still there. And periodically, I'll, I'll get a phone call from somebody who's going through town, and they'll say, Con, you remember me? Oh, sure, sure. How are you? <laughs> Excuse me. So bottom line, uh, it set up friendships for me that uh, will forever be there. 
So uh, by by 1990, um, Smithville Stadium had fallen a, a little bit off the the state of the art uh, and needed a little bit of uh, uh, a facelift, I guess you could say. Uh, and and the city of Jackson was kind of balking at it uh, at, at at spending the money on upgrading the stadium. Well, the that's Met- exactly how we ended up losing our relationship with the Mets. Yeah, they were very good friends of mine, and uh, there was no personal pressure, but they wanted some changes made at the stadium. They wanted uh, a facelift, if you will. They they had several things that they wanted to get done. I went to the city and talked to them about it, and very honestly, they said, that's not money we want to spend. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> so uh, the Mets said, Con, you understand how it works, but uh, we want better facilities for our people. So uh, uh, they moved up to uh, New York to an area up there and uh, so we were left looking for a franchise and uh, as it worked out at that particular time Houston Astros were looking for a place to play so they needed a place to play I needed a team to play here with me and that's how our relationship with the Astros got started and by the way it was a great relationship, and the Astros people were were very, very good people to do business with. In fact, the head of the Astros organization at that time and I are still business partners and own horse racing or horses together. So it uh, it was a very beneficial time, and it worked out really well. So the the general spent uh, you know a handful of years in Jackson, won a couple more Texas League championships, five in total uh, that uh, the uh, Jackson was able to claim in their years there. Uh, you sold the team ultimately to uh, Nolan Ryan, who moved it back uh, into Texas. What was it like dealing with uh, the Express there? Well, Nolan and I were were acquaintances up until that point, and and uh, he heard that things were not doing real well here. Our attendance had dropped down to around twelve hundred a night or whatever, and that was not financially rewarding. and And I got a call from a good friend of Nolan's and said, "Would you be interested in selling the franchise?" And I said, "Well, I'm not interested in selling it, but unfortunately, it's gotten to be a little bit of a financial drain. So I'd be glad to talk to Nolan." So I did, and Nolan and I became very good friends and and uh, we uh, we worked out a situation where we became dual owners and uh, and moved it to Round Rock Texas and Nolan was a uh, was a great partner to have he's very matter of fact and uh, he's a, he's an interesting interesting guy Nolan never went in a visiting clubhouse because he never wanted to get to be friends with people that he might have to throw awfully close to <laughs> that's great uh, that's that's fantastic so um, you uh, you still have plenty of connections to the game you mentioned through the relationships that you built in your time as a, the, the owner of the Jackson franchise but uh, uh, you have a, a son that is uh, involved in the game still to this day. Is that correct? Well, not only is he involved, you know, he's <laughs> the manager here uh, of the uh, Mississippi Braves. And uh, it worked out beautifully for him because he was he was completing his contract with the Cardinals. The Braves came and talked to him about taking this uh, this franchise as manager. And uh, what they didn't understand at the time was he had a son who was a senior in high school, and it would be ideal for him to to be living here in Jackson uh, with his son being a, in his senior year. So they negotiated a deal. They thought they kind of got got it over on him. He thought he got <laughs> kind of got it over on them. Both of them got what they wanted and uh, he uh, he's doing a very good job Atlanta has has a good system unfortunately it doesn't move all the way down to the double a level in fact we were laughing the other day they sent him down two pitchers to rehab and one of them the first night gave up five runs in the first inning and the second <laughs> night the pitcher gave up four runs in the and he told him he said hey quit doing me any favors I don't need any of these guys that's great and it's it's interesting having having been a fan um, you know who loved to go into the stadium and was a fan of the Mets and the Generals and also being here while you know and and, and being a fan of the Braves it is so interesting how I guess how, how teams operated their systems then and now if a guy 
most all of the time, if a guy landed in double A to start the season, they would let him have the full year to develop. And so if you had a, uh, you know, a 19 year old Daryl Strawberry fall in your lap in Jackson in 1981, um, you would get the whole season to watch that guy. And, and as the story broke out about him, hey, you need to come see this guy play. Um, you get a chance to nowadays with the way the Braves work anyway. Uh, if a guy is hot and he's already a highly touted prospect and he gives you, I don't know, three good weeks to show you that he could play in double A, you better come see him now because he might be gone the next time they're in town. Well, that's an interesting point. However, right this minute, the Braves have a third baseman mm-hmm. who will definitely be a major league player. The kid has got all the tools and he is a joy to watch. He can hit, he can throw, he can feel. And uh, anyone who has an opportunity and wants to see a potential major leaguer needs to come out and see him. And, and your point is well taken. It, you don't know how long they're going to leave a particular player, especially at the AA level when they need something at the major league level. level they move up from the AAA level, and, and you're going to lose them at the AA level. But for right now, he's playing here, and uh, I would definitely recommend that anybody who's interested in watching a future major leaguer come out and watch this kid play third base. Yeah, that's uh, Austin Riley, who's a Mississippian, by the way, South Haven. That's correct. Yeah, that's South. correct. And, and he's such a good guy, too. That's, that's the interesting thing. So many, so many times you get... Uh, <clears throat> You get kids with those kind of talents and tools, and, and they become somewhat of a prima donna. Riley's definitely not that <laughs> way, and uh, he's a joy to watch, and the way he approaches the game, and, and when he hits a baseball, there, there's a special sound to, to really good hitters when they hit a baseball. And when you've been around it as long as I have, you hear that sound, and all of a sudden you look up like, wow, who hit that ball? And uh, <clears throat> when he hits a baseball, that's the sound you get. Yeah, he's a South Haven native, went to DeSoto Central High School, who, by the That's way, correct. will uh, start 6 a quarterfinal playoffs tonight. So let me ask you, before we let you go, and I, again, I could ask you a ton more. We'll have to get you back on. No problem. Glad to. Um, when you walk into Trustmark Park in Pearl, or if you have been to MGM Park on the coast in Biloxi, those are two beautiful facilities. But the fact that we have minor league baseball in Mississippi, um, you have you have to know whether you want to admit it or not. You want to be, you know, um, you you were a big part of why minor league baseball, professional baseball, came back to Mississippi uh, and established itself as a place where it can thrive and be successful. What do you think when you from from where you started with Smithville Stadium uh, in the mid and early 1970s, you walk into a place like Trustmark Park or MGM Park now, what do you think about how far the game has come and, and your, your piece, your role in professional baseball in Mississippi? Well, when I walk in there, the first thing I realize is is wow what a gorgeous park i mean it really really is so so well uh, maintained uh, they have a large staff of people that take care of their uh, of their fans and uh, the facility very honestly is overbuilt for jackson and I, they never talked to me about that when they built it, and, and that certainly was fine. And, and Atlanta owns it, and they've got enough money to where, you know, for me, if I had something that cost me an extra five or ten thousand dollars, it was uh, it was always kind of tough because it came right out of my pocket. As far as Atlanta's concerned, they can do what they want, when they want, and how they want. And so they built this beautiful facility, and <clears throat> if they have fifteen hundred or two thousand people in there, it's a fairly good crowd, and I think they'll seat like eighty five hundred or so. Yeah. So I think it's it's overbuilt for the marketplace, but you can't change that. But with that said, when you go out there, you can appreciate the amenities that are there. You can appreciate the fact that, that you're just comfortable being in the ballpark. It could be uh, uh, two-thirds or a half the size that it is and still be very, very nice. But when you have situations like you had Ole Miss and State playing the other night with 8,500 people in there, now that's a different story, and in those specialized situations, Situations, it's great to have that size ballpark. But overall, normally speaking, uh, it is larger than what we really need in the marketplace. I would love to see it filled up every day. And uh, and like I said, it's it's the kind of facility that could do that. It can take care of the crowd. They can provide the crowd with everything they want there. The food is good. Uh, it, it, and they have good staff of people. So it's it's just a good place to watch baseball. And, uh, and, and Smithville Stadium, still there, still kicking. 
the old girl looks pretty good, considered uh, you know how long she's been around and, and what all has gone on, uh, and how long she's been out of professional baseball at this point. You know, Hill Denson and Bellhaven, they're they're the the, well, the primary I'm still, tenant. I'm still very much involved in that. We needed someone who was going to be have a relationship with the city, and that particular someone ended up being we, being me when it when it all came down. So I'm still very much involved with what goes on there. But you're exactly right. Bellhaven takes care of the stadium overall. They do a great job of keeping it going and looking good. We try to keep everything painted and looking as fresh as you possibly can. It is somewhat outdated, and uh, but it's still a good place to go watch a ball game. And, and there is absolutely no baseball park in the country that has a better backdrop than Smith Wills. Absolutely. Con, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed uh, talking with you. And again, I mean, it's just a lot of tip of the iceberg stuff right here. And, and, and I could ask you a thousand more questions about uh, your time owning the Mets and the Generals and Smith Wills and baseball in general. Well, and, generally uh, speaking, baseball has become a passion of mine. I've enjoyed it. Having my son here managing the uh, the AA ball club out at Trustmark. And, and uh, so my interest and excitement is really good. One interesting comment. I've got seats right down behind home plate. And my son one day said, Dad, I sure am glad you've got those seats. And I said, well, that's nice to hear, son. Thank you. He said, no, what I mean is I know how far down you've got to walk and how far up you've got to walk, and I know the exercise is good for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. So we never know what turns somebody on. (laughs) That's right. Con Maloney, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you being on this morning. My pleasure as always. Take care. Peace. Absolutely. All right. When we come back. We're going to speak with Coach Anthony Dodgen, 21-year coach of the Alcorn State men's and women's tennis teams, a uh, tremendous championship pedigree uh, down in Lorman over the years and then at St. Al, St. Aloysius in uh, Vicksburg before that. And then later on, we'll also talk about, uh, we'll, we'll get you set up with, the, we'll have some Kentucky Derby talk with the Derby coming up uh, this weekend. I'm Jay White, along with producer Liz Gill. This is MPB Season Pass on Think Radio. this interview, we invite you to go to our website, mpbonline.org slash season pass to hear more interviews with Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame members. Welcome back. This is MPB Season Pass on Think Radio with producer Liz Gill. I'm Jay White. Thank you so much for listening on this Thursday morning. We invite you to go to uh, the show page on our website, mpbonline.org. There you can find audio on demand of all of the episodes of MPB Season Pass. You can listen uh, right there on the website uh, if you're on your computer, or you can also, uh, and or, you can subscribe to the podcast uh, at mpbonline.org and have that sent out through your phone. If you would uh, like such a thing, um, right there from our website, mpbonline.org. Uh, we, uh, I'm Jay White. This is MPB Season Pass. Producer Liz Gill here with me. And uh, uh, glad to welcome to the show Anthony Dodgen, one of the winningest coaches in the history of Alcorn State University Athletics. He's set to retire at the end of the school year. And uh, so we thought we'd love to, to bring him on and talk about uh, the evolution of tennis at Alcorn and the championships and all of the winning and everything else over the years. Coach Dodgen, thank you for coming on. Oh, you're welcome, Jay. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. So you have a, a fascinating story on how you got into tennis in the first place. You played baseball uh, in high school. Uh, would you call yourself an, a natural athlete? I, you know, in, in my younger years, I was a pretty good athlete. Um, I did pretty well at baseball. Played uh, played football from Wingfield High School about 100 years ago. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I just got um, got started with tennis as a 
kind of recreational thing and then got pretty serious with it. Uh, I made it to uh, actually started playing USTA tournaments and uh, I think my highest uh, ranking in Mississippi was number four in the 30 to 35 year old category. So, yeah, it was just something that I adopted, so to speak. So um, you didn't start playing tennis until after college, right? So what what drew you over to the game from from what you had previously been playing and enjoying as uh, you know in sports? Well, I've always been an athlete, and I, I needed something to you know give me some competition. And you know, when I started playing tennis and got into a few tournaments, uh, I enjoyed it and uh, got a little more serious with it. So you uh, teach in math in Port Gibson, right? And then you see uh, that uh, a, a, a job for a tennis coach, and you offer to help. Tell us how you came about uh, uh, educating and, and, and coaching and teaching folks about tennis. Well, I, you know, I was at Chamberlain Hunt Academy. I, I went back uh, to Southern Miss and got a degree in mathematics. Uh, and then I also uh, was asked to coach the tennis team there, and I accepted I knew very little about the sport. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, our first trip was to uh, uh, school in Rolling Fork, and uh, I was cheering for the players and kind of being a little bit too loud. One of the players had to come over and say, hey, coach, you, you got to wait until <laughs> the points are finished before you can do all the cheering. So it was a learning experience for me, but... Yeah, I think I've done pretty well with it over the years. So uh, you come to uh, Alcorn uh, in the fall of 1996. You were hired as a, a mathematician that could coach tennis. Uh, it, well, were you hired as a as a mathematician that could coach tennis or a tennis coach that could also teach math? How did that work out? <laughs> I think either way you want to put that. <laughs> um, I was contacted by Dr. Clinton Brissot, Jr., uh, in the summer of nine, early summer of '96, and Dr. Bristow wanted a tennis program, and he was also interested in uh, bringing in a mathematics teacher. Mathematics teachers are pretty rare finds these days, so you know everything uh, fell in place. I accepted the job and began my career at Alcorn State University. So I, I, I saw a, a Facebook comment from a friend of mine on Facebook, uh, a guy named Stephen Augustinelli, and he says uh, <laughs> he, yeah. he says of you, he, he coached at St. Allen, won seven straight state championships, and then won 12 SWAC championships at Alcorn. He was a really good coach and an even better calculus teacher. So which do you take more pride in, uh, the, the, the ability to teach advanced math or the ability to teach tennis? Well, I, I took uh, both pretty seriously um, you know I try to support students um, in the mathematics classroom uh, yeah and I, I'm pretty good at it I, I try to make students feel comfortable and then in the area of student athletes and tennis uh, again you know just good solid support for the individuals and let them know that you know I trust what they do and they can trust me and uh, just develop a good relationship between the students and the student athletes is important. And uh, I seem to do fairly well at that over the years. So I'd say you know, it, it's been a good career. When you got to Alcorn, what was this? What was the tennis situation like? What did you? What? What? Did, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you, you kind of established the program, right? Is that how it turned out? I did. Yeah. So, uh, what's that like? First, building a program from scratch. Oh, it was definitely from scratch. My first visit to the tennis courts, uh, they were gravel, concrete gravel courts with um, chain wire fence for nets. So it was it was pretty rough. Uh, <laughs> the first year was a, a real adventure because I had players that had been playing for Alcorn, and you know they were great great kids and they they worked really hard at it but you know yeah they were basically you know student athletes that came in out of high school uh no tournament experience really and uh they just pretty much built the tennis team from uh from high school players at that time that were on campus i, I don't think there was a lot of 
recruiting going on uh, at the time I came in. So as you developed and, and built the program, how, how did you go about recruiting players? Well, I, I tried to recruit uh, locally, uh, you know, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, in the southwest part of the country, and I just had no success at it. Very few people replied. I don't think there were just a whole lot of people that wanted to come to a historically black college or university to play their college tennis. So uh, I was contacted by some international players, and then uh, the fall of 97, I brought in a few guys from Australia, a young man from Russia, and actually another young man from uh, Washington and a young man from California. And uh, we actually kind of <laughs> kind of firmed up the tennis program <laughs> pretty much pretty much overnight. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. What was that like when when you, when you come out the next season and uh, you got these guys uh, from all to and fro? What, at, what did the rest of the coaches think about that? Did you kind of did you revolutionize? You know the, was, the how the league I worked. Was, yeah, I was definitely a wake up call for the Southwestern Athletic Conference. Uh, you know, at, at the time, uh, Jackson State and Southern Baton Rouge were dominating the SWAT conference in tennis, and I, I think that first championship in ninety eight, ninety nine, I believe it was. Uh, set a new standard for the level of tennis in the SWAT conference. Um, at the time, uh, Willie Shepard was coaching at Jackson State, and after I won the championship that year, I, you know, Jackson State immediately built a 12-court facility <laughs> with a nice little you know, clubhouse there. I told Willie, I said, Willie, I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> so, from that point on, uh, everybody was pretty uh, serious about beating Alcorn State University. So 12 championships. Uh, you know, what, what did the, uh, the, the athletic directors that you've had over that time and the, and the, the presidents of the university, uh, did, did they ever uh, seek your uh, leadership ability or knowledge or ask you how you were able to, you know, stay on top of the league for that long and, 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 uh, and be well, that successful? One, yeah, one thing that uh, I have to say, uh, at the time, Dave Whitney was uh, still out at Alcorn. And also uh, a gentleman named Marino Casson, who uh, is also yeah. known as Godfather. My first uh, three or four months at Alcorn were pretty rough. Nobody told me anything about what I should do or what I need to do or anything like that. I went to the cafeteria for six weeks and paid for my lunch. <laughs> and meanwhile, all the other coaches were getting their, their cafeteria meals for free. So, you know, I, they broke me in pretty well there. And uh, Dave Whitney finally took me under his wings and kind of showed me how to operate at Alcorn State University. And uh, at the time, uh, Marino Cassum was athletics director out there. And they both kind of steered me in the right direction and taught me how to operate at Alcorn State University. And, you know, after uh, after my association with those guys, I, I kind of just kept going forward. So it was a good experience. It was a great experience uh, learning from Dave Whitney and Marino Casson, that's for sure. Yeah, it's not it's not too bad to, to be working every day with the Wiz and the Godfather. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, it was pretty impressive, really. So uh, now that you are retiring, uh, wh what are you planning on doing? How are you going to stay busy? Are you going to stay plugged into the game? I, I will, you know, continue to to stay involved with tennis. I've, I'll probably be going to Oxford. My daughter, Ashley Dodgen, is uh, doing a lot of tennis in the city of Oxford. And I'll probably hook up with her and we'll do some programs there. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll keep up, you know, I'll get to watch some Ole Miss tennis up there, too, which I, I enjoy quite a bit. We've played Ole Miss multiple times over the years, and uh, they've got a great program up there. 
So, yeah, I, I intend to stay involved for sure. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I saw yesterday where uh, the the women's teams at both Mississippi State and Ole Miss made the NCAA tournament, and uh, that's that's pretty cool. That doesn't happen a whole lot where uh, both teams in the state are successful at the same time, so that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think the coaches at both of the universities are doing a great job with uh, recruiting both at Ole Miss and Mississippi State. And, uh, you know, I know those guys pretty well. They're really great, great people, uh, good coaches. And we've, we've played them for a number of years. Uh, yeah, we're the reason we get to play a lot of the SEC schools and larger schools at Alcorn State University is uh, these guys know that we have a pretty solid program. And they respect our program, so we were we were able to compete with those uh, SEC schools and some of other schools like Tulane, and, you know, larger schools that were you know large competition. But we enjoyed playing those schools. Coach, congratulations on uh, the the fun road that you've taken through uh, you know Western and Southwest Mississippi, and and the success that you've had, and the championships and everything. And uh, we hope you have a, a fun and enjoyable enjoyable retirement well i sure do appreciate that and i appreciate you having me on the show jay and uh, you know just like hope or hopefully everybody will enjoy the stories absolutely and uh, uh, a fellow wingfield falcon here so falcons falcons fight oh <laughs> how about that <laughs> yes sir all right they, they, oh go ahead uh, those were good years. <laughs> Absolutely. Coach Anthony Dodgen, uh, Alcorn State tennis coach, retiring at the end of this uh, this school year. We appreciate your time again. Thank you, Jay. All right. When we come back from this break, we'll be speaking with Dr. Glenn Warren, thoroughbred ho- horse owner, and our guide to this weekend's Kentucky Derby. So you don't have to necessarily watch the eight-hour pre-race. If you, if you don't want to, you can just listen the next 20 minutes of the show, and you'll be ready. How about that? With a Mississippi flavor to boot. I'm Jay White with producer Liz Gill. This is MPB Season Pass on Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thanks for tuning in to MPB Season Pass. I'm producer Liz Gill. Jay White and I have swapped seats because I'm just tickled about our next subject. Uh, I lived in Kentucky for about five years, and I also grew up in Arkansas where Oaklawn Racing Park is uh, uh, always a fun place to to go out to and spend some time. So we'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Glenn Warren. Uh, Dr. Warren's a thoroughbred horse owner. Uh, He lives in Florida. And he's been selected as the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders Association Member of the Month in a recent past. And uh, one of the few people that I was able to find who uh, has some local knowledge about uh, thoroughbred racing. Thanks for coming on to the show, Dr. Warren. You're quite welcome. Well, now the Kentucky Derby is coming up this weekend. Uh, Dr. Warren, why do you think this is such a popular, this particular race, you know, one race on one day uh, is uh, in during a whole year of sports. Uh, why do you think this is such a, a popular race? Well, it's gotten to be a legendary race. The first uh, Kentucky Derby was run in 1875. So this will be the 144th running of the Kentucky Derby. And, of course, it begins what's called the Triple Crown of Racing, and uh, the Kentucky Derby is a lead-off race, and this is strictly for three-year-old thoroughbreds. 
strictly three-year-olds. And the distance of the Kentucky Derby is one and one-quarter mile. And then two weeks later, it's a Preakness, which is in the Baltimore area. And it's one and three-sixteenth mile, just a bit shorter. And then three weeks after that is the third part of the Triple Crown of Racing, and that's the Belmont, which is out on Long Island. And it's it's the longest of all. It's one and a half miles long. And so that really tests a lot of horses. Some horses just cannot get that distance. And so you see some changing around. Some horses that may run in the Kentucky Derby uh, may not be able to make that mile and a half. So you don't see them again after the Kentucky Derby. So, But around the world, the Kentucky Derby is still known as the most popular race in the world. That you know that is something. Yeah, you mentioned the the triple crown. Uh, lots of people make like to make a big deal about uh, a horse that could win all three of them. I, you know, I guess it was uh, what in two thousand and fifteen that American Pharaoh was the last horse to win all three of them. Before there'd been uh, some that had come close, but it hadn't been since the seventies. Why do you think? What's why is it so hard uh, for a horse to win all three races? Well. Uh, these horses, uh, like the horse that's going off as a favorite, apparently this Saturday, a horse named Justify, has only raced three times mm-hmm. and uh, did not run as a two-year-old, which is quite unusual. Most of these horses that will be in the Kentucky Derby on Saturday raced as two-year-olds, so they began to get some experience uh, at an earlier age. Uh, but then this one has only raced three times, has won all three of the races including the Santa Anita Derby, which is a challenging race. But uh, the fact that they only run three-year-olds, that causes a lot of horses to fall by the wayside. And you probably heard already that one of the horses that was supposed to run came down with a fever, had to go on antibiotics, and therefore cannot race in the Derby. And that always happens. Thoroughbred horses and all horses, as far as that goes, they're such fragile creatures. That big body on those spindly legs... And in their earlier years, especially as yearlings and two-year-olds, they have so many problems that uh, put them on the shelf, and they just are not able to reach that three-year point and be uh, ready to run in a big race like the Kentucky Derby. So if you look at the news all along during the year for thoroughbreds, a lot of them will start out thinking that they may make it there, but then they have a a problem with an extremity and uh, they just go by the wayside, and you may never hear from them again, as a matter of fact. Yeah. You know, the race is at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky, not Louisville, yeah. as as we've got. Uh, and it's always the first Saturday in May, and it is a race for three-year-olds. But so, you know, the people who maybe the only thing they know about horse racing is the Kentucky Derby. Uh, what about what about two-year-olds? You mentioned Justify didn't run. What what about four-year-olds, five-year-olds? How do they make their mark, make their money? And Well, a small number of the horses that race in the, in the Triple Crown will go on to race uh, as four-year-olds. Actually, thoroughbreds tend to be faster as they get into their four-year-old year. Uh, and so the ones that do best in these triple crown races will usually be retired and they will go and stand at stud instead of continuing to race. Uh, and stallions uh, are so valuable if they uh, throw some good runners. But, of course, you have to have uh, two or three crops of uh, offspring before you know if you have a good runner or not. The uh, stallion that uh, brings the largest stud fee now is a horse named Tappet, T-A-P-I-T, which stands uh, at Windstar Farm just outside Lexington. And the stud fee is 300000 <laughs> And in thoroughbred racing, breeding, it has to be a live uh, event. It cannot be... Uh, artificial insemination. So and we got to, to go lot. to a public viewing of uh, a live event uh, one time when we were in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a romantic event. It's just a quick event. Bam, bam, thank you, ma'am. And then they move on to the next uh, mayor. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, you can't use artificial insemination, but a horse like Tappet may cover as many as 120 mares in a season. So you can see how those numbers add up. So 
people that have good runners and think they can make money from the breeding uh, side of the thoroughbred industry will go ahead and retire their horses and and send them to a farm to be a stallion. And so that, that's the next part of a, a, a thoroughbred foals. Uh, I'm sorry, a thoroughbred uh, career uh, rather than. Uh, continuing to race because they usually make a lot more money uh, standing at stud. Right. Well, you know, we talked about uh, the favorite this year is uh, Justify. Uh, Mendelssohn is the, the, the next choice with, a, uh, you know, we've got about uh, 20 horses that'll race. So you've got past performance, bloodlines, owners, jockeys, trainers, post position, the color of the silks that the jockey's going to wear, uh, the names of the horses. What what uh, what set of uh, factors do you like to look at when you pick a winner? Well, I like to look at the, the pedigree of the horse, uh, their past record, uh, how fast they've worked, that is, uh, under the clock, how fast they've uh, run, say, five-eighths of a mile and how many of those works they've had. So there's so many factors that go into it. And, of course, in the Kentucky Derby, post position is very important. You don't want the number one post because that way you may get bumped up against the rail and have to pull your horse up, and then you you can't stand in the Derby going a mile and a quarter to lose a couple of lengths because that tells you you're going to get beat right there. Same way with being far outside. It's rare to have a horse that's, number 18 to 20 that that wins a race so you'd rather be in the middle portion so far as numbers are concerned and justify has a seventh post position which is a very good position to be in most trainers would like to be in the middle of the pack uh, because in the kentucky derby the way the track is laid out you want to try to be up there close to the front when you go into that first turn so that gives them a chance to be there rather than being left way behind because if you're behind then uh, it's going to be a very difficult task to catch up and and you don't have many secretariats this day and time. That's right. And if folks in Mississippi aren't able to make it up to Louisville for the for the uh, watch the Derby and they're having their own little parties at home uh, for the ladies, it's all about the hats. Right. And uh, for betting, uh, I love the exotic wagering. What what? Tell all the folks all the different ways you can bet on a race. Well, there each year there seems to be more, but uh, of course you can bet straight across the board. Just say that this horse is. You want to bet on number seven, and you can say uh, $2 across the board. So you've got a, a bet there to win, place, or show. But if you want to go into the exotic exotic betting, you can do an exacta, which means that you uh, pick the first and the second horse. And um, then you can go from there to trifectas and superfectas, and it's just all kind of betting that one can do this day and time and they'll it, take your money just anyway <laughs> anyway anyway you'll pass it out to them yeah i've i've never been so much on the real far out exotic uh, bets and i do bet on my own horses but um we were at the derby last year and and made quite a few bets i didn't come away with any more money than i went there with uh, because when you have those big fields that makes it much more difficult to pick the winners or the one that's going to run second or third uh, but it is fun and it's exciting, and it looks like uh, speaking about the weather. It looks like the weather this year is going to be quite good. In the mid 70s last year, it was a little rainy and cool, uh, but that didn't keep the people away. I think there was over 150,000 people there for the Derby uh, last year, and of course on uh, Friday afternoon they have the uh, Kentucky Oaks, which is for the Phillies, and they have uh, the, a similar race. To the Derby on Friday afternoon, and and there was almost a hundred thousand people there on Friday for that race last year. So it really brings out a crowd. And the Kentucky Derby is not a one-day event. There are events going on in Louisville all week long. Everything from uh, races on the river to all kind of parties, of course. And uh, everybody has to have a mint julep. And uh, so you can't say, "Well, I've been to the Derby," unless you've had a mint julep. That's and right. We all have to have those. Big, big hats, and most of the people there 
uh, may not have ever seen a horse race before, but they'll be thrilled by the events. And it's called uh, Run for the Roses, and the reason for that is the winner gets this uh, tremendous wreath of red roses, usually more than 400 red roses are made up into this wreath that they put around the winner when they go to the winter circle. So that's where that run for the roses comes from. That's right. With with, with the gambling in my family, uh, we like to think of the gambling as our uh, is, is the the money we spend is the uh, the price for the fun. I don't. We don't ever <laughs> expect to win anything, yeah. Yeah, but if right. you do, it's nice. Well, uh, Doctor Warren, we've just got about a minute left. Uh, tell us how does it feel as an owner when you're watching your own horse race? Oh, that's very exciting, and I've had the pleasure of having. A- Several, several winners and uh, a couple of won some big races. Uh, I have one uh, Colt that won $1.3 million and uh, won one of the big races down at Fairgrounds. The purse was 650000 And then I have a mare that won about a million dollars, and she won 21 races. And she was a come-from-behind horse, a heartbreak-type horse. But it's very exciting when you see your own horse coming down the stretch, and it's obvious that they're going to win. And so... That's what keeps a lot of thoroughbred owners into this crazy game because it's not a way to make money. Maybe 15% of the owners actually making make some money out of owning this uh, these horses. And one of my friends said, I never want any animal that eats 24 hours a day. Well, these thoroughbreds eat 24 hours a day. And, of course, they get more veterinarian attention than most children uh, get from their pediatricians because there's always something wrong with them since they are so fragile. Yeah, the disclaimer to uh, keep the robbers from showing up at your house to collect all that money you're rolling in, uh, this is not a cheap sport. Not a cheap sport, and it's not one to make a lot of money in. I would never advise anybody to get in to, to make money. There, You hear about all these good luck stories where somebody buys a cheap horse and the horse ends up winning a million dollars, but those kind of events are rare. Uh, well, Dr. Warren, we are so glad that you are with us today. Thank you so much for your perspective on the Kentucky Derby. Well, thank you, and uh, good luck to everybody that's going to be placing a bet on one of these uh, beautiful horses. They are gorgeous animals. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, Jay, I usually go with the color of the jockey's silks. I'm also I'm partial to the orange. Um, you know, look in the eye. If they've taken the time to braid the horse's mane, that gives me a good feeling that they're ah, going to be a winner. Attention to detail. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, watch to see how much spunk they've got coming out of the gate. That I, I, I bet scientifically. <laughs> so yeah, so the ones they can't line up in the in the gate, the ones that are all like, nah, nah, I want this. Uh, that, that, they've so got sparks. No, 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 that's good. That's a good sign. They've got they're they're raring to go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they can never get them in that gate. Some of them they just don't want it. Well, thanks for tuning in to MPB Season Pass. We'd love you to subscribe to our podcast. Go to mpbonline.org/slash/season-pass. Uh, our next show is going to be Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Kids and Teens. This is on MPB Think Radio. Thank you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.